Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. Imagine this. You're leaving the theater with friends. The credits roll. You get up and walk outside. You and your friends part ways and you start walking across the parking lot. The wind digs into your clothes, giving you goosebumps. You check your phone, the bright light from the screen blinding you to your dark surroundings. Maybe you're texting your significant other. The film is over. On my way. The movie frightened you, but you leave that out of your message. Between the sound of distant cars driving, you hear a pebble skittering across the pavement. The hairs on the back of your neck rise. You feel this moment in your life eerily mirrors a scene in the movie you just watched. Your heart starts to race a little. You're breathing a little heavier, exhaling fumes of fear. You whip your head around, but you see nothing. It's pitch black. You're still blinded by your phone. You steady yourself for a moment, but pure panic erupts in your belly and sets you on fire. You can see your car under a light. Safety. But you can also see the future. A masked man in black, wearing thick leather gloves and wielding a knife, is behind you. You run. Your feet pummeling the pavement. The wind whips up dramatically, pushing against you, slowing you down. You have your keys in your hand, and as you get within feet of your car, you press unlock, open the door, throw yourself into the driver's seat, and slam the door behind you. Your eyes are shut tight, your breath burning your throat. You slowly gather your courage and look outside the window. The parking lot is empty and well-lit. You thought you were falling into the void just ten seconds ago, but it's just a movie theater parking lot. You shake your head and feel silly for being afraid. Sound familiar? We all have intrusive thoughts, and that's natural, especially after seeing a horror film. You just spent the last two hours empathizing with the unknown victim and in part experiencing their fear and terror. It's vanity fear, though. You feel it, but you aren't in any danger yourself. It's exposure therapy, filling you with small doses of anxiety and stress, making you more acutely aware to the dangers of the world. Maybe there isn't present danger, though. Perhaps it's just paranoia, but tomorrow, unlike the victim in the movie, you'll wake up. You'll have your breakfast and have a perfectly normal day. But unlike you and I, my creepy friend, some people don't empathize with the victim. Unlike us, 
Some people are filled with excitement and envy when watching the horror movie villain committing their atrocities. Some even make their own movies. On October 3rd, Gilles Tetro found himself on Edmonton's south side, connected to downtown by a series of highways and completely surrounded by the prairies of northern Alberta. One moment you could be at the mall shopping, and no more than a five-minute drive away be out in the middle of nowhere on a dirt road. New to the city and recently separated from his wife, Tetro was lonely and looking to get back into the dating pool. The 33-year-old tech contractor turned to a dating site to solve his loneliness. Plenty of fish. And it was on Plenty of Fish where Tetro met a woman with the username Spiderwebs. Her real name was Sheena. She was young and beautiful, 5'6", with blonde hair and blue eyes. But most importantly, Tetro found her intelligent and interesting to talk to. She was also interested in Tetro, seeming anxious and borderline insistent that they meet in real life. So when Sheena finally emailed Gilles Tetro, suggesting dinner and a movie, Tetro happily and eagerly agreed. On Friday, October 3rd, 2008, Gilles Tetro got ready for his date. He probably wore something nice, as we all do, hoping to make a good first impression on a woman he enjoyed talking to. Sheena gave Tetro her address and told him to pick her up. As he got into her neighborhood, he pulled down a residential alley and then to what Sheena had told Tetro was her garage. Gilles arrived a few minutes after 7 p.m. He parked in front of the garage door, which had been left partly open in anticipation of his arrival. Where Tetro had expected to meet Sheena, instead he saw nothing but a pitch black room, and then someone began to attack him with a cattle prod. The blue light of the electricity flashing brilliantly in the dark room. Above him, Tetro saw a man towering over him wearing a hockey mask. It was then that Tetro knew this wouldn't end up being the date he had expected. A moment of surreal silence hung between the two men. The masked man reached into his pocket and pulled out a gun, which he pointed at his prey. Tetro was pushed to the ground, his eyes now covered with duct tape by his assailant. Unable to see and unaware what the masked man intended to do to him, Gilles decided to go out on his own terms. He leapt to his feet, ripping the duct tape off, seeing the man with the gun still standing there, the gun already out and pointing directly at him. Tetro lunged and grabbed the gun, and as he did, a spring of hope welled up inside him as he realized the gun was a painted toy. The masked man began punching and grappling Tetro as he struggled to the garage door. Falling backwards and rolling underneath the partially open garage door, Tetro crawled to his car. His legs were numb and didn't listen to him when he willed them to walk. The masked man got out of the garage and stood over him, beginning to drag Tetro back. At that moment, a couple were walking by. Tetro screamed for help. The couple saw Tetro, but feared that it was an elaborate hoax and that both the man in the mask and Tetro were planning to rob both of them. 
Instead of helping, they ran home and called police. But when police arrived, Gilles and the man in the hockey mask were gone. Gilles Tetro made a mistake, and one I hope none of you make. He went to go meet someone he didn't know, who he thought he knew but had met online without telling anyone where he was going to be that evening. He was alone in the city, and it's this loneliness that drove him to seek companionship on Plenty of Fish. In Edmonton, where the edges of the city fall off into sprawling endless prairies and ditches, and small forests down gravel back roads, Tetro had told no one where he was going. A week later, on October 10th, 2008, another man put on a nice clean shirt, maybe some cologne, and set out to pick up his date for the evening, following a set of directions. A set of directions to the very same garage that Gilles Tetro had been the previous Friday. John Altinger was going to meet a woman named Jen, who he had also met on Plenty of Fish. John was tall, 28 years old, with friendly, honest eyes. He was passionate about motorcycles and was never offline for long. As he drove to meet Jen for the first time, John was characteristically texting a friend the running commentary of his evening, even going so far as to forward the directions to where they were meeting. Just after 7pm, he sent a text saying he had arrived. After that text, John was disconnected. Silent and offline for once. No messages in, and no messages out. Two days later on Thanksgiving 2008, when John Altinger missed a much-anticipated motorcycle ride. That's when his friends and family began to worry. Although being offline for long was unlike John, it was when he failed to notify anyone that he wouldn't be able to make the motorcycle ride that everyone started to clue in. Something was wrong. But then on the Monday of the long Thanksgiving weekend, John sent everyone a text. I've met this extraordinary woman named Jen. He then proceeded to say he would be going with her to her place in Costa Rica for a nice long tropical vacation and told them he would call at Christmas time. John's friends began calling everyone John knew, even calling his work. No one had seen or spoken to John. Something was definitely wrong and it was time to call the police. When police were contacted, their response was wait and see. Wait and see? Something was wrong with their friend and Edmonton police wanted to wait and see. So later that day, they went to John's apartment and broke in, determined to find what was happening with their beloved friend. They found his clothes. They found his suitcase. And they found his passport. John wasn't on vacation. Armed with this new knowledge, John's friends went back to police and insisted something be done. They showed them the text claiming he had left or was leaving on vacation and showed police John's passport, which he couldn't leave the country without. This time, police took them seriously and investigators already had a head start on figuring out what had happened to John Altinger. Because unlike Gilles, Altinger had told a friend exactly where he was going and how to get there. 
On October 18th, investigators followed those directions to the garage, the same garage where two men in the last three weeks had gone to pick up their dates, Jen and Sheena. Police spoke to the landlord and found contact info for the individual who rented the garage. And on October 19th, 2008, they brought him in for questioning. Mark Twitchell was an aspiring independent filmmaker who had told police he had been filming a movie. Investigators dropped their suspicion towards Twitchell when he agreed to show them the garage and answer questions. In fact, he was happy to. As they inspected the garage, Twitchell pointed out that the lock to his garage had been broken. The lead detective on the case, a skilled interrogator, reviewed the footage of the questioning. Was Mark Twitchell hiding something? Was his body language defensive? Was he being obtuse and avoiding questions? In his personal opinion, the lead detective determined he was being upfront and honest. For now, police would look elsewhere. Twitchell wasn't the one responsible for the disappearance of John Altinger, in their opinion. Two weeks had now passed since John had gone missing, and police were sadly coming to the regretful conclusion that they might need to be looking for a body. And this is when they turned to the public looking for tips. And the couple who had seen Jill Tatro being attacked and had run home to call police were finally called in for questioning. Sitting in the interrogation room, things began to get muddled. The couple assumed the man they had seen being attacked, the one they thought might have been part of a two-man scheme to rob them, was John Altinger. They were stricken with remorse. They thought they had left a man to die, to just disappear. But as investigators pieced together their story, they realized that this had taken place a week before John had his date. It happened in the same place, though, and the same way. Investigators shifted their tactics now with this new knowledge. They were now looking for two men, one who they knew was 28-year-old John Altinger, who had last been heard from on the Friday of Thanksgiving weekend, and the second man, still unknown to police, who was seen by the couple being attacked. Investigators didn't have much to work with. They didn't even have evidence that a crime had even been committed yet. So in late October, police once again reached out to the public, looking for more information. Was Gilles Tetro still alive? He hadn't come forward to report the assault. If he was alive, why hadn't investigators been contacted? Was he a married man keeping a scandalous rendezvous secret from his wife? Perhaps there wasn't a crime at all. Maybe this was just bizarre circumstance. No. Instead, it was fear. And you can't blame Gilles. I can't. And I know you, my creepy friend, are more understanding. More aware of the gray nature of things. Gilles was terrified. He had no idea who the masked man was, or that he would strike again. Perhaps Gilles was the target, given the nature of a predator reaching out on a dating site. Maybe this assailant was a stalker. On November 3rd, 2008, almost a month after Gilles was assaulted, investigators arrived to work, grabbed their coffee and sat down with Gilles Tetro anxious to fill in the missing pieces of the puzzle. 
Detectives listened as Gilles described how he met Sheena and how insistent she was that they meet. He explained how she'd given him the directions and when Tetra arrived, how he walked into the garage to find the masked man with the stun gun. And he explained how he escaped. Police, enraptured by the story, chills climbing up their spine, felt as if they were listening to John Altinger, they would hear the exact same story. All the pieces lined up. The modus operandi was identical. Police had previously interviewed Mark Twitchell, the man who rented the garage. But Twitchell insisted that he had never met Altinger and had no idea what had transpired at his garage studio. Investigators felt at the time he was being upfront and candid, speaking with honest surprise and confusion. But that isn't all that happened that day. After the interview, Twitchell called police to tell them he had purchased a new car. A red Mazda hatchback. The same year. The same make. The same model as the vehicle that John Altinger drove. The coincidence of the red hatchback was just too much to ignore or explain away. In fact, Twitchell was never entirely off the radar at all. Police hadn't forgotten about him. In fact, he was at the very top of their suspect list. Did you think I had told you the whole story? That I hadn't left a single detail out from my narrative? Did you trust me not to withhold information? Now I ask you, why did you trust me? Because we're speaking to each other right now? I promise not to knowingly lie, but I want you to think for a moment. If it was so easy for you to trust that what I was telling you was exactly how events played out in real time. Imagine how easy it would be for someone to take advantage of your loneliness. It's the most despairing of human emotions, and to escape it, you have to be open. You have to make yourself vulnerable. Meeting new people is a dangerous game. Once again, investigators contacted Twitchell, who then agreed to come in for questioning voluntarily. He appeared to be a cooperating and concerned citizen trying to help the police. Detectives asked him about the red hatchback, and Twitchell explained that he had purchased it from a man on the side of the road. According to Mark Twitchell, the man told him he had shacked up with a rich lady who was going to buy him a new car when they returned from vacation. That was blood in the water for investigators. Had Twitchell been the one responsible for the attack and the disappearance of Altinger? This didn't matter, though, unless they were able to get a confession from Twitchell. Investigators had no evidence tying him to an actual crime. There was no body. No murder weapon. Nothing to suggest that there was a crime, much less a murder. As the questioning continued, detectives pressed him further, but to no ends. Before Twitchell left the questioning, the lead detective said, You won't be able to live with this. And Twitchell tellingly responded, You'd be surprised what I can live with. Investigators were granted warrants to search Mark Twitchell's car, his house, his belongings, and his computer. But they weren't finding the crucial evidence they needed. But two days after interrogating Twitchell while police combed through his laptop, finding nothing, 
they looked in his computer trash bin before giving up. In the trash bin, they found a file that Twitchell had deleted. The document was titled SK Confessions. And as investigators skimmed the document, it was clear what SK stood for. This is my story of my progression into becoming a serial killer. Like anyone starting out a new skill, I had a bit of trial and error. Allow me to start at the beginning, and I think you'll see what I mean. Detectives could not believe what they were looking at. Twitchell's SK confessions detailed the entire crime. Police compared the details in Twitchell's confession to the facts they already knew to be true, and they found a remarkably detailed account of the events. The document described the attack on Tetro and continued to detail the attack, murder, and dismemberment, as well as disposing of the body of a man Twitchell called Jim. This seemed to be the story of what happened to John Altinger. I sang to myself as I worked, talked to myself, and reflected to myself what tools I would get to make the next one easier. Mark Twitchell was a massive movie fan. He often dressed up as his favorite characters. One of his favorite television shows was Dexter, and it would be this character that Mark Twitchell was trying to emulate. Twitchell, as it appeared, wasn't as good as Dexter at covering his tracks. In fact, he was terrible. But that was the initial inspiration for what ultimately happened to John Altinger and what almost happened to Gilles Tetro. Given the level of detail, police considered this to be Mark Twitchell's confession. And as such, Mark Twitchell spent Halloween 2008 in the back of a police cruiser, under arrest. But one piece was still missing. Where was John Altinger's remains? Detectives took Twitchell on a car ride around Edmonton, trying to urge him to show police where he had disposed of Altinger. But Twitchell refused. The lead detective on the case later visited Twitchell while he was in prison awaiting trial, once again trying to convince Twitchell to show him where John's body was. And once again, Twitchell turned him away. But nine months later, Mark Twitchell asked to meet with investigators, with conditions. Detective Clark, the lead investigator on the case, could not be present. All the buildup and nine months of frustration led to a meeting that lasted only three minutes. Twitchell handed them a Google Map printout and in a note attached detailed the location along the street where Mark Twitchell disposed of John Altinger in a sewer. In March 2011, Twitchell went on trial for first-degree murder. Taking the stand on his own behalf, Twitchell tried to convince the court and jury that he had lured Gilles and John to the garage to build publicity for his upcoming movie, assuming that when he let them go they'd spread the news of what had happened. But it all went wrong according to Twitchell, when John started to fight back and in response Twitchell had no choice but to defend himself. Remember the document titled SK Confessions? According to Twitchell, this wasn't a confession at all, but pure fiction. But only four hours later, the jury returned, 
able to tell this fiction from fact. On April 12, 2011, Mark Twitchell was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to 25 years to life with no possibility of parole. Edmonton can be a desperately lonely place. It's Canada's most northern major city, and it sits in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by sprawling prairies. This desolate land is also home to some of the most beautiful sunrises and sunsets I've ever seen. The most dazzling lightning, but contrasting that mesmerizing sheet lightning and those surreal sunsets and sunrises is the fact that Edmonton in the winter is one of the coldest places on earth. And in the summer, while it's warm, it's also incredibly dusty. And much like the environment that Edmonton exists in, the people there can be both beautiful and cold. I've met some of the most wonderful people in Edmonton, but I also know what it's like to be lonely in that city. John Altinger's only crime was his loneliness, seeking out the company and companionship of others to survive in a world that sometimes we just feel lost in. He made himself vulnerable and open, and that's what you have to do when you're seeking companionship. But you can't always trust people. Trust can be a powerful thing, and it can also destroy you. Both John Altinger and Gilles Tetro trusted the women they were talking to online. And this trust very easily could have led to both John Altinger and Gilles Tetro finding love. They were unlucky. Someone was out there preying on openness and vulnerability. John Altinger texted his friends, letting them know where he'd be. Gilles Tetro did not. It very easily could have been Gilles Tetro who didn't make it out of this story alive. And John Altinger who did. So, Creep, did you enjoy today's episode? If you did, please subscribe and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. For each five-star review, I get one step closer to moving out of my mother's basement. Tales by Cole is a weekly podcast and is released every Tuesday. If you don't want to miss a single episode, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to follow along on social media, you can follow me on Twitter at Tales by Cole and Instagram at Told by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by me, Cole Weavers, and sound engineering and editing by Matt Black. And with that, I bid you adieu. Be safe, take care of one another, and don't forget to lock the door.